0: Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Tuesday. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. Welcome to the program. Rob Breckenridge with the Afternoons on QR Calgary. Our number here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. A lot to get into today. Plenty of time for your phone calls, your tax. Well, let's talk about uh, off the top here this afternoon, CEO salaries. It's uh, this time of year each year. The Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives releases uh, its latest report looking at CEO salaries in Canada. Latest reports uh, with the headline. Canada's new Gilded Age finds that the 2022 numbers, and this is the most recent data, uh, set new record highs for CEO pay, an average of $14.9 million, up from 14.3, uh, which was the uh, previous record. Uh, so based on that, that works out to uh, about 700, or rather, $7,162 per hour for the average CEO. Meaning that uh, already... 2024, 927 this morning, uh, a top CEO would have already made what the average Canadian earns over the course of 12 months. So, what do we make of these numbers? How do we dissect what CEOs or how CEOs are being paid? What kind of policy implications does it have? You can read more at policyalternatives.ca. But joining us off the top of this afternoon, David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, uh, the report's author. David, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
1: Sure thing. Thanks for having
0: me. Uh, so let's talk about why, first of all, you, you do this. I think 2008, you, you guys have been putting out this report annually since then. What, what do you see as the value of uh, this kind of information for Canadians?
1: Well, this is a very practical look at income inequality. Uh, so it's not just the top 0. Or 0. 0.1% or 0.01%. These are names and faces and companies that you would know that you bank with, that you shop with, where you eat and so on and it really gives us some idea of how these uh, richest ceos are doing compared to the average worker you can also break down the types of pays uh, that ceos receive dissect why they're receiving you know what's really driving the gap between workers uh, and, and these top ceos and it becomes a useful benchmark year after year to see uh, given big changes in the economy like the pandemic like inflation how does this affect the pay of ceos and the pay of average workers
0: so uh, let's talk, first of all, big picture, as mentioned. So 2022, so we we don't yet have the data for 2023. So we're sort of going back to the previous year. But this finds that 2022, there was a, a, a new record high average?
1: That's right. And so what's worth pointing out is that CEOs often make a salary, but it's largely irrelevant in their overall pay package. And this looks at the total pay, not just their salaries. Their salaries, on average, is only 8% of their pay. 4% of their pay for CEOs is, um, performance based pay. So bonuses in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the exact opposite. I mean, regular workers might see a small bonus or something on the holidays, but you know, they're not paid by bonuses for the most, you know, for the most part. Now these bonuses for CEOs are based on company performance nominally, things like profit, things like revenue, that sort of thing. And we got to remember that in 2021 and 2022, Inflation was running rampant, Uh, prices were going up, and the CEO said, look, we're just raising our prices because our costs are going up. Turns out that wasn't entirely correct. Uh, Profit margins also hit record highs, because they were certainly increasing prices to cover costs and then some to ensure that profits were going through the roof. Inflation drives profits, profits drive bonuses, and that's why we're seeing, in large part, these records in 2021 and 2022.
0: Okay, well, you touched on something because when we look at salary, I mean, you go through this list of the top CEOs, the highest actual salary in this entire list is $4.5 million. Most others uh, are lower than that. In some cases, uh, there's zero or just $1. So there's uh, the total compensation, which ref- reflects, as you say, uh, some of these other incentive based pay structures. So, what do those typically look like?
1: Well, there's three broad categories um, one is cash, so it's a bonus uh, of cash based on a set of criteria. Uh, Another one is you're paid in stocks in the company instead of cash. Uh, And the third broad category is stock options. So you get a sweetheart deal to buy the company stock at some point in the future, say a couple of years or something like that. Um, And these all combine to make the broad sort of incentive-based or performance-based pay Uh, And the proportion of income uh, that is made up of this bonus pay has been going up as well. It used to be 70% when we sort of started looking at this in 2008, now up to 84%. And at the same time, things like salaries uh, have gone down. The salaries have actually been relatively consistent over time at about a $1 million. I think it's up to $1.2 this year, but it's relatively consistent over time. What's driving this big gap is bonuses, is the bonus pay.
0: There seem to be a couple of standouts uh, in, in these, these latest numbers, and maybe that's, that's skewing some of the results here. You've got J. Patrick Doyle, who's the executive chairman of Restaurant Brands International, which owns Tim Horton's, uh, Burger King's, some other restaurants. He's not even the CEO. The CEO is also on this list, but he pulled down $151 million in 2022. You've got Matthew Proud uh, from, I guess it's a software company, in Durham, limited at $98 million, and then the third place all the way down at, well, $36 million. So that's a pretty big gap from one and two down to three. What, what do we make of these two? Are, are they anomalies?
1: That's actually a pretty common trend of seeing a couple people at the very top of the list and then big gaps before you get to the big grouping that's that's around the average. Uh, this is actually not the highest pay package that we've seen uh, for Canadian CEOs. That actually happened in 2015. Um, and so one of the other things that we look at is, you know, the average can obviously be skewed by these folks at the very top. Uh, so the other thing too you want to look at is, Is uh, how much the hundredth person makes. So you know how much you have to make to even get on the list in the first place in the hundredth position. That also hit the new all-time high this year. Um, What's interesting is that uh, I was curious as to you know these extreme pay packages. The idea is you know you pay your CEO this extreme amount and you get extreme performance uh, because you know you paid them so much more they're going to work that much harder and so on. Um, So I actually looked at all of the people who topped our list going back to 2015 uh, and said, okay, a year after these extreme pay packages ended, how was the share price of the company doing. And the best case was that the share price was down by a third. And so there just doesn't seem to be, you know, you can't buy more performance just because you pay your CEO, you know, $50 million more than the next highest CEO on the list. There seems to be little correlation over the last couple of years in Canada.
0: Well, talk about that, because it seems like a disconnect then. If they're earning a lot of money because they're being paid partly, or at least in some parts, on on shares, uh, but the shares are not doing better, if that's the case, why are are they receiving more in this kind of compensation?
1: I mean, this is the nature of the bonus structure, is that the the pitch is that, look, it's merit-based, right? If the company does well, they get paid more. If the company doesn't do well, they get paid less. Uh, Or they get paid nothing. I mean, you know, that's hypothetically the risk of of, uh, these CEOs that have no salary. It's all bonuses. You know, maybe the company does badly, they get paid nothing. Does that actually ever happen? I mean, this is one of the big questions. And we learned the answer in 2020. Uh, 2020 uh, was a bad year for most Canadians, actually a pretty bad year for corporate profits as well, which plummeted as parts of the economy were shut down. Um, What happened though, is that after the fact, they went back and changed the bonus formulas so that you were insulated from a big decrease in your bonus, saying it wasn't your fault, therefore you shouldn't see a cut in pay and that sort of thing. Um, half of the CEOs on our list that year for the 2020 data set either did this, changed their bonus formulas, or received government support, or both. Um, and so this bonus structure, they let it ride when times are good, and when times are bad, they cap the losses so that you don't see big decreases, if any decreases, uh, in CEO pay. In fact, in 2020, uh, the average pay was actually slightly higher than in 2019 when there was not a pandemic and corporate profits hadn't plummeted.
0: I mean, it is a a global competition, isn't it, to some degree? I mean, J. Patrick Doyle, we mentioned he tops this list. He's an American. He had been previously the the CEO, I think, of Domino's Pizza. Uh, So Canadian companies are trying to lure these figures, and perhaps Canadians uh, who are in these kinds of positions, maybe they're being lured to to, uh, other uh, global businesses. So how much of a factor is that?
1: It's actually really exceptional to see somebody lured in from the outside. Uh, The pitch from CEOs is, you know, it's a hockey draft, right? Like all the CEOs go to a big room, go to the hotel ballroom, all the companies go there and they bid on the CEOs. And if you don't get a good CEO, uh, you know, your company goes bust the next year, it does badly. Um, That's not actually how CEOs are hired in Canada. Uh, The better analogy for Canadian CEOs is they are company men. They start with a company, they work their way up the company and end up in the CEO chair the average amount of time that uh that the CEO is with the company is 18 years 75% of the top CEOs are hired internally um which is to say they're working their way up and that shouldn't be a big surprise i mean you do want people heading the company who know the company because they've worked there and know the industry because they've worked in that industry and so this idea that there's some sort of vast competition you have to outbid everybody on the planet it's not actually how CEOs are paid uh, are hired and it shouldn't be how CEOs are paid
0: so should we have a vested interest, or I guess more to the point, should policymakers, should our elected officials have any concern or interest in, in addressing this? Does it beg any sort of a policy response?
1: Income inequality is of great interest to Canadians. Uh, it means that when, you know, the, the, the question is when the economy does well, when your company does well, hopefully you want those those things to do well. Uh, do you benefit from that as a worker, uh, as frontline worker? And in our economy, as it stands, who gets rewarded when things go well? Um, at present, we really over-appreciate and over CEOs for their contribution to economic growth and underappreciate the contribution of regular workers. Think of during the pandemic, for instance. Prior to the pandemic, we thought of grocery store workers as unimportant, low-skilled jobs. And in the middle of the pandemic, turns out we really need grocery store workers, even though, uh, you know, it doesn't require the highest level of training. They become essential workers. I think in some ways that encapsulates broadly what's happening in our economy as we just undervalue online workers who also work hard every day. They're never going to make as much as CEOs, and maybe they shouldn't. Um, But it's this gap and uh, the spoils of economic growth really going to the very top that should be concerning for us.
0: Much more is mentioned. PolicyAlternatives.ca. David, appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. David McDonald, senior economist, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, the author of the latest report on CEO compensation in Canada, what they call Canada's new gilded age. That the average CEO earns about $14.9 million a year, about $7,162 an hour. So based on that calculation, they've earned the salary of an average Canadian worker by about 9.30 on January 2nd. So that, that's one way of framing it. And, and, of course, CEOs are going to be well compensated. And I don't, I don't even think that they're disputing that. They're arguing that it's kind of got out of hand. In 2008, when they started doing this, the average CEO salary was $7.4 million. So it's doubled since then. Is that a reasonable amount of time for a CEO pay to double? Again, a lot of this is based on uh, bonus structures that are built in. A lot of it is based on stock compensation. So if the stock's doing well, you as the CEO are going to do well, which infers that the company is is doing well. And, you know, certainly uh, you as an employee or you just even as a citizen can benefit from a company's stock rising if you're also a shareholder in that company. What is interesting, and it gets maybe to the point that David was making, is it's not always that cut and dry. Uh, Now, for example, you look at Restaurant Brands International. So, J. Patrick Doyle is the executive chairman. So, there's a separate person who's the CEO, and he's also on this list. Uh, but J. Patrick Doyle managed to rake in $151 million in 2022. His salary was $0. So, $106 million of that came from share-based awards and $45 million from option-based rewards. And the thing is, and look, you hold shares in restaurant brands internationally, you Probably seen this in recent months. Uh, Going back to October, the company's share price has surged from about $85 a share to over $102 a share. But that's this year. Remember, this guy's pay, we're talking about the 2022 numbers. In 2022, Restaurant Brands International, their share price uh, did not do all that well. Uh, They were down on the year, more or less. Pretty flat, but some some ups and downs. Uh, another one is in Durham Limited, which, again, they had a pretty rocky year in 2022. Uh, so, th- you know, their CEO's uh, second on this list. So that's what's a little confusing about this. You would expect, then, uh, another one, Magma International, third place on this list. Uh, Magma International's stock was down in 2022 and pretty flat in 2023. Welcome back. So a lot of question marks around the Canadian economy as we uh, head now into 2024. Uh, Where things are going with inflation? Are we going to see interest rates come down? What's the impact of all of this on the economy? The Bank of Canada seems optimistic that we can, you know, still have the so-called soft landing, getting inflation under control and avoiding a recession. But on the latter point, we're cutting it awfully close. So Stats Can, uh, their GDP numbers for the second half of 2023, and they had to go back and revise some of these numbers, which is, you know, I mean, it does happen, right? You, you go back and, and revise some of the, the, uh, the assessments. But found that Canada has technically avoided for now a recession, but that growth is more or less flat, right? A recession is two quarters, consecutive quarters of economic contraction. So it, it kind of showed that, and then the revised numbers said, well, maybe not. But we're awfully close to one regardless. So are we going to see a recession in 2024? Already, are we already in a recession, Perhaps the latest assessment from Oxford economics suggests we might be. We could see some choppy economic waters in the first part of this year before uh, things settle down later this year. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is uh, Tony Stillo, uh, Director of Canada Economics with Oxford Economics. Tony, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Oh,
2: my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So, like I say, I mean, I think it's fair to say GDP growth is is essentially nil, like we're basically a best case scenario, I think, kind of at zero. but what's the case for uh, Canada being in recession? What are you saying?
2: Oh, well, actually, in the third quarter, we contracted. what you're seeing is um the a lot of uh, forecasters, Bank Canada included, looked at the revision up for the second quarter. It went up three tenths down in the second quarter, down three tenths in the third they say we're kind of where we thought we'd be kind of flat. Mm -hmm. So I think they're underplaying the contraction that that began in the third quarter. And actually, if you go back to the middle of 2020, oh gosh, 2022, 2023, we've been in a, a, a per capita GDP recession, meaning our economy hasn't kept up with the population growth and in a recession on that basis, on a per capita basis, for quite some time. We get all bogged down on the technical definition of a recession. Uh, And I think that if you look at what's happening in the third quarter, we think that uh, that's the the start of more declines to come because we, we think the, the lagged impact of higher interest rates are continuing to filter through now.
0: Yeah, it's hard to imagine we'd suddenly see an uptick in, in the fourth quarter. We, yeah, you're right. So we don't see those numbers yet. So that may cinch it. But regardless, yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty flat economy. It's it's an interesting contrast because it seems like the U.S. Is, is enjoying some pretty robust GDP growth. Why, why do you think there's such a disconnect?
2: Well, uh, a number of factors. Uh, the most important of which is we—they uh, uh, don't have the indebtedness of our households. If you look at our debt, uh, the share of income for households, or debt as share of the overall economy, we are well above the U.S. Actually, above where the U.S. was before the global financial crisis, you know, a decade and a half ago. So we are much more interest sensitive. We also rely on our housing sector quite a bit, and have had much more overvalued housing markets. So two areas that are very interesting of well housing and household spending, uh, that's where we think the difference is.
0: So what does it mean for Canada's vulnerability? Um, you know, with some maybe rough economic waters in the first part of this year, that Canada might get hit a little bit harder, you're suggesting?
2: Yes, that's, that's our forecast. That's what we expect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always kind of wild cards in the mix, like what happened earlier this year, where all of a sudden those people who bought cars are way back during the pandemic and couldn't get them delivered they finally get um, a supply chains clear up. But we think those will be lesser going moving forward. Same thing with those sort of excess savings built up during the pandemic. And so we think that, that um, the, the mounting mortgage renewals are going to push up debt service costs. And you're going to see households pull back other areas of spending to maintain those debt obligations. In the worst case scenario, if people who have uh, mortgage obligations beyond their capabilities, you'll see more listings. Yeah. So we also have the housing market uh, both... Uh, resale market and, and the new construction market uh, weakening through the first half of the year.
0: Is it fair to say, I don't know if we call it a silver lining or not necessarily, but you know that, that weaker economic growth or even recession, that, that might help to tame inflation. That might help convince the Bank of Canada that we can shift into a, a rate-cutting phase. Does it get us there sooner?
2: I think it does. Uh, the Bank of Canada, again, they seem to be sticking to their soft landing scenario and, and have inflation returning back to its 2% target late in 2025 we think uh, the the weakening demand from a, a downturn in the economy a moderate downturn but still nonetheless a downturn and loosening labor markets um slack in the economy will see us hit our back to our target by the end of this year that's about a year earlier than the bank of canada now as far as their um their policy rate and what they think they'll do in terms of when they'll start cutting we think that uh, they'll they'll do so by mid-year when there'll be ample evidence that this 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 disinflationary trend is here to stay and get us back down to target. And does
3: so that then, we,
2: yeah, and, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, was just I, I say it. think they'll yeah. start cutting in mid-year yeah. um, and then make it gradual because I think the Bank Canada does not want to ever um, reverse course potentially later. So I think that they'll want to have that convincing evidence that we're on this disinflationary trend back to the target and they'll, they'll wait for that roughly mid-year, June-ish, and then slowly gl- uh, lower rates.
0: And does that help bring some recovery, some economic recovery in the second half of this year?
2: Uh, Yes, it does. We think that's why we're looking for a a moderate recovery, because we also have a global environment that doesn't have a lot of strong growth engines. Um, But we think that that uh, lower interest rates, lower boring costs, easing inflation. So all of a sudden you start to see a little bit more um, uh, uh, bank, uh, money in, the, in your pockets if one holds cash anymore, yeah. um, and, and, and you'll start to see a moderate pickup in the second half. We're also looking for housing. There's a lot of efforts across Canada to boost housing supply. Those take time to kind of get shovels in the ground and we're, we're thinking that um, it should start happening in the second half of the year as well.
0: Well, yeah, and the population growth is, you know, kind of a factor in all of that. You alluded to how maybe the population growth has kind of overshadowed some of the underlying weakness in the economy. Uh, so what is the impact? Because it doesn't seem like that growth is slowing down anytime soon.
2: No, we're looking for it to continue for the next uh, couple of years. Uh, the the federal government has made announcements about immigration targets. They're less clear on Temporary residents, but we're expecting those to add over the next couple of years about another million and a half people. Uh, and what you what we tend to see is that um, initially they add to the labor supply, but they take a while to fully settle in the economy. So the sort of benefits to the economy, the sort of um, actual GDP growth that comes from those, those other uh, those additional um, uh, people in the country take time. Now, what it is happening is it is straining uh, some areas of the, uh, um, housing, housing market, particularly rentals. We, we, have, we our, our work Stats Canada's analysis suggests that most, uh, newcomers to Canada tend to rent initially. So that's why we don't think it'll change the kind of view on our house price forecast for the next, uh, six to nine months. But over time, it does add to housing supply. It puts pressure on public services like health and education. And so there's a variety of, uh, of trade-offs. But I think in the end, um, it just takes time, we do need these uh, migrants that are helping us add to our labor supply, especially in critical industries with shortages, uh, be it construction or, or skill, other skilled trades.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's not fiscal policy per se, although it can have some, some economic implications. But on the fiscal policy side, if the economy is slowing, there's always that temptation for government to shift to a, a sort of a stimulus spending approach. But what, what are we anticipating on, on the fiscal policy side?
3: Well, you know, the
2: fiscal policy we think is caught between a rock and a hard place uh, in an environment of a, a, um, an economic downturn that we think is underway. But barring a severe downturn in the economy, a severe recession, we think the government will refrain from anything that would be a fiscal stimulus, that would be inflation-inducing. That would undermine the monetary policy at work. So what you'd see is if if the federal government or any level of government did massive fiscal stimulus, the Bank of Canada would then be, Uh, putting in tighter uh, monetary policies, so one would offset the other to a certain degree. So what we're expecting to see is targeted measures, things that um, are are really targeted at affordability, whether you think about the grocery rebate last year, the exemption for um, purpose-built, the GST exemption for purpose-built rentals, things that kind of really target getting at those affordability concerns. Now, we have an election in
0: 2025,
2: um, and so if there's a a snap election, if something happens sooner, you never know on the political side of things. You could see more of those targeted measures, but we don't anticipate any sort of major stimulus unless the recession was much more severe than we expect.
0: We'll see what unfolds in the next 12 months here. uh, Much more at OxfordEconomics.com. Tony, thanks so much for the overview. Appreciate your time here this afternoon. My pleasure. Likewise, all the best. Uh, Tony still a director of uh, Canada Economics uh, with Oxford Economics, oxfordeconomics.com. So they think we're already in a recession, which, you know, I, I think it's, it's a fair assessment. And even if they're, you know, we're not, we're not far off. So, yeah, it was the second quarter that showed negative growth. And then the third quarter showed negative growth. That's a recession. StatsCan revised the second quarter and said technically we were on the growth side. So not technically a recession. We'll see what the fourth quarter data tells us. But, I mean, that's that's pretty flat growth, not really growth at all. So, either you're growing or, or you're not, and I think we're on the not side. And, you know, as he points out, I mean, the other thing, too, is we haven't really seen growth for years. We've had a growing population, which has, I, I think, helped to obscure those underlying weaknesses. If you kind of look at GDP on a per capita basis— yeah, we've been in a recession, probably have been for a while. So that, that's a telling number. So they say we're in a recession. It's a moderate recession, and we'll see some kind of moderate recovery later this year. Uh, they do expect to see the Bank of Canada shift to an easing cycle, getting inflation to target a, ahead of schedule, and beginning to, to bring rates down. So that's what they're expecting uh, this year. We shall see, obviously. Welcome back, welcome to the hour of the Program, and of course, welcome to the new year. The start of uh, the new year, uh, the month of January, so is seen by many as an opportunity to sort of rethink uh, a relationship with alcohol. You know, coming off of the Christmas season, and I guess New Year's Eve, and a lot of the, the drinking that goes along with all of that socializing, maybe January is an opportunity to at least take a break. So for a lot of people, January is dry January. Uh, and just an opportunity, I guess, maybe to demonstrate to oneself that you don't need alcohol. That going a month without it is no big deal. And maybe revealing to some who might find that, uh, well, it turns out it is. Uh, Canadians do enjoy alcohol. As noted in the National Post here this morning, Canadians drink more alcohol than the global average and above the median for high-income countries. Uh, so much of that might be... Just kind of casual, moderate consumption. Not necessarily uh, concerning. But a lot of it is. Uh, heavy drinking, alcoholism, alcohol use disorder. Uh, these are all issues we do struggle with as a society. So how does the uh, medical system, how do our doctors need to address that? There are some new guidelines in place. Uh, they're encouraging doctors to, to ask some questions, to do some more screening uh, for alcohol use disorder. So maybe your next checkup, maybe you might expect some more questions along these lines in terms of your relationship with alcohol. Joining us to talk a bit more about why this is needed is one of the scientists who was involved in uh, drafting these new guidelines, Dr. Jürgen Rem, is a senior scientist in the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Dr. Rem, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: So, first of all, let's talk about what what alcohol use disorder is. And people are familiar with with alcoholism, or at least that concept. But what do we mean when we talk about AUD?
3: Well, alcohol use disorder is a scientific name for alcoholism. Alcoholism was deemed to be too stigmatizing and too many negative connotations. Right, okay. So the scientific name or the name uh, which the doctor uses in his uh, sheets is alcohol use disorder. What does it mean? Basically there are about 10 criteria. None of that is just drinking a certain amount, but in the core of it it means that people have lost their control above about their drinking. So they no longer have control over their drinking. That's the core of the concept okay. of alcohol use disorders.
0: Uh, you know, we tend to talk about drinks per day as, as a measure. Um, is there, you know, some, some objective criteria that can determine whether alcohol use disorder is, is present with somebody?
3: Yes, there are uh, objective criteria. They're just not criteria which lay in the number of drinks per day. Mm -hmm. The criteria would be partly biological criteria, for example, an increased tolerance. You need more and more alcohol to get the same effect. Or for people with quite severe alcohol use disorders, Withdrawal symptoms, meaning if you don't get alcohol, you start sweating. You some people start trembling, etc. Uh, there are also social criteria. People forget their social roles or do not fulfill their full social roles because of alcohol. And there are psychological criteria. And there is craving. If you don't get alcohol, you crave for it. Yeah. You can see it if you, try, uh, you started the conversation with dry January. Mm-hmm. If people really only think about alcohol and say, oh, it would be so nice to have alcohol now and they can no longer uh, uh, keep their pledge of a tri-January, that would be one sign, one out of 10, of alcohol use disorders. You need to have three signs, at least, to speak about a, uh, an alcohol use disorder.
0: So is this something that, that is underdiagnosed in Canada? Do we miss a lot of this?
3: Yes, we miss a lot of those uh, because it is a highly stigmatized disorder, and, uh, Neither the patient nor the doctors feel very comfortable in speaking about alcohol use. While other things are diagnosed quite routinely once a year, smoking, for example, did you have problems uh, taking the stairs very quickly, were you completely out of breath, did you have some... uh, pain in your uh, right uh, with the heart, etc. Those would be typical questions for checkups. In those questions, there should be also the checkup for alcohol, alcohol use. How much do you drink, etc. And that is what the guidelines are trying to re-bring back into the interaction between doctors and patients. <laughs>
0: Because it sounds like maybe doctors know what they should be asking. They're just not comfortable asking those questions. So if that's the obstacle, how do we get past that?
3: Well, training and uh, making sure that doctors know what is at stake. And I think the new guidelines, which were released some months ago, uh, are doing that. They have been the most sought after guidelines uh, CM, uh, the medical journal which published them mm-hmm. has received. There were thousands of requests. The website has seen hundreds of thousands of people trying to use that and that gives us the hope that we can start maybe something new with those guidelines.
0: So what would be the process? then? if a doctor asks those questions, you know, it's a routine checkup, but some of the answers are, are concerning. There's some indication maybe that there's an issue. How does this need to be addressed? What would be the next steps?
3: Well, uh, it's as you said, we, the doctor starts... Uh with asking, is, would it be all right to talk about your relationship with alcohol, has one screening question. If that's positive, he may ask one or two more questions. And then he would say, look, you're drinking too much, so you are at risk of alcohol use disorders. And then if, the, uh, if this is correct, uh, the doctor either gives a brief advice or goes on to do a formal diagnosis. If there is an alcohol use disorder, then there is a a choice of the patient. And the choice of the patient is if he wants to stop drinking or cut back drinking. And these choices will be done interactively. It's not the doctor is telling the patient, uh, you have to do this and that or the other. It is, look, you're drinking too much. You do have a whatever, let's say, moderate alcohol use disorder. There needs to be some interaction. There would be some kind of intervention, a brief advice. And if the patient says, okay, I accept this diagnosis. I would like to change my life. The question is, how would you like to change it? Would you like to stop drinking altogether or would you like to cu- uh, cut back on drinking? Right. And then the patient has a choice.
0: Right. And so a lot of it does fall to, to each of us to, to be honest with our doctors and to be prepared to, to, to hear their advice.
3: Yes, of course. And the doctors are, and this is usually the family physician, are an interactive partner which usually there is a level of confidence there is a level of trust and that level of trust should be used to explore that and if there is too much drinking to reduce that drinking or to help the patient with the need uh with all the needs they have
0: Very interesting. We'll leave it there. Dr. Rem, thank you so much for your insight on all this. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon.
3: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: All the best, sir. Take care. Uh, There you go. That is uh, Jürgen Rem, a Senior Scientist at the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, One of the co-authors of these guidelines, which has mentioned, published recently, the Canadian Medical Association Journal, meant as some guidelines for physicians and, and even by extension, I guess, for all of us. You know, just to have those conversations with patients, for doctors to ask those questions. And if it doesn't seem like there's any issue there, then then move on. You know, if your doctor asks you if you smoke and the answer is no, I mean, don't take it personally. That's just something maybe doctors might want to know. Okay, this person doesn't smoke. That's good. On to the next thing. But I think, you know, Dr. Rem is probably right that there's a lot of this that goes undiagnosed or underdiagnosed in this country. Uh, So alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, whatever you prefer to call it, I think we all understand the potential harms that can result from all of that. Uh, The toll it takes on an individual's health, sort of the collective toll that it takes on on society. That if we could reduce that, that's not a bad thing. That's one way to start. Uh, We are still right in the midst of, I guess what we're calling respiratory illness season. And it seems like there's a lot of that going around. Uh, flu, RSV, common colds, uh, which does overlap, I guess, somewhat with RSV, but also COVID-19. Now, earlier in 2023, of course, you know the official pandemic phase ended. The World Health Organization in May declared an end to the global health emergency. Doesn't mean the COVID-19 went away. It's still very much with us. There. Are Certainly, people in hospital uh, dealing with complications in COVID, and there are still people losing their lives as a result of this virus. We're in a different phase. Now, how did we get to that phase? Well, new research out of the University of Alberta finds that uh, vaccines played a pretty huge role in that, in, in what we refer to as domesticating the virus getting us into this uh, new phase this more endemic phase so joining us to talk a bit more about uh, what these researchers looked at what they found very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon Uh, one of the researchers riley mcclellan a phd candidate studying virology in the department of medical microbiology and immunology at the university of alberta riley great to have you with us here this afternoon welcome to the program
4: yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having
0: me. First of all, let's talk about this concept of, a, you know, domesticated or domesticating a virus. What does that mean?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, obviously we all know about the, the term in context of, say, animals, like domesticating wolves to become dogs. Um, we essentially applied this concept in, to describe the process of uh, a virus, a pandemic virus like SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. Uh, to adapt to humans. Um, I'd like to be clear here that uh, the domestication process does not imply that this is a safe thing because it has been domesticated and adapted, Um, but it certainly has changed its behavior uh, or I should say, its characteristics as it as it infects humans and has become domesticated.
0: Yeah, I mean, clearly, we've in t- into a, a different phase of, of this virus. I mean, last year the the WHO, of course, ended its you know global health emergency, but uh, the virus hasn't gone away. So th- this is what you're talking about: how it's it's kind of shifted.
4: Exactly. So we we talk about how this virus has shifted from a more pandemic strain to a more endemic strain, and is coming closer to. Uh, Viruses more like uh, influenza or RSV, which are circulating seasonally yeah. throughout the year.
0: So let's talk about how you go about examining this question of of how vaccines have had an impact. So actually, as I understand, this is uh, Alberta data that you were drawing on.
4: Yeah, it was pretty interesting. We actually had a so as the COVID nineteen pandemic progressed. Um, All of the data regarding um, the percentage and the level of vaccination throughout Alberta, as well as the number of COVID-19 cases, um, both in uh, hospitalization just generally and then those cases that have then progressed to ICU uh, and those people that have also died from COVID-19, all of that data was actually published on the government of Alberta website. And so what we were able to do is actually just take all that data, analyze it uh, using our own techniques, and then from that, uh, I guess, sort of challenge our hypothesis here and, uh, and and look at what the impact of these vaccines and also how the, the virus has progressed throughout the pandemic.
0: Right. And so what do we see then?
4: Um, so what we see is that, of course, as the, vi- as the pandemic has progressed and new variants have emerged through uh, essentially just mutations that have evolved in the virus to um, help it overcome the host defenses, uh, those mutations kind of come at a risk to the virus where it changes and alters the pathogenicity of the virus as it affects humans. Um, and so we saw in terms of vaccination, um, we can't say that vaccines directly cause uh, this uh, domestication process to speed up because we just don't have the data for that right now. Um, but what we can see is that as the vaccine strategy started to come into play and the vaccination percentage of the population got higher and higher, um, we noticed that the uh, viruses became more domesticated as that, uh, vaccination strategies started to emerge, um, and that coincided with decreased pathogenicity, and what we can surmise is that uh, this vaccination strategy has really helped to um, prevent the virus from essentially killing us, and helped it to adapt to humans in a more beneficial way, becoming more seasonal as opposed to pandemic.
0: So what does it mean now going forward for vaccination?
4: Um, it means that we still need to keep getting vaccinated, absolutely. Um, the What I mentioned first is that domestication does not mean safe. Um, Right. Like a domesticated pit bull is not a safe creature. And the same thing can be said for uh, SARS-CoV-2. And so um, as it continues to mutate and change, um, that alters the efficacy of vaccines that say we've already taken or maybe in some cases haven't taken at all. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is keep vaccinating in order to get the virus down and and reduce the mortality overall to um, essentially keep propagating this uh, or potentiating this process of domestication in the virus.
0: Right, and I mean you know, given that we we 've seen it it mutate uh, you know it 's not going away, is it I mean the idea then of of you know eradicating covid nineteen altogether at this point is that, is that not really um realistic anymore was it ever
4: no full eradication of virus is is incredibly difficult, and it's not something that happens easily, and especially for a virus like this where We know it has animal reservoirs, so it can infect uh, creatures other than humans. Um, And this means it can essentially hide from us if we were to, say, create, you know, hypothetically the perfect vaccine that eliminated infections totally in humans. We would still have the virus hiding away in, I don't know, say, bats or any other creatures that can infect. infect. And this would essentially uh, inhibit that total eradication process. But what that means for SARS-CoV-2... and Uh, Realistically, the future um, is that this virus is going to keep progressing and keep uh, circulating throughout the population uh, all over the world, and it's going to mutate into uh, a different virus essentially, as a new sort and different variants, I should say. Yeah. Um, And this is something we saw with H1N1. You can see uh, H1N1 is actually, you know, a strain that, of course, caused a, a pandemic back in the early 2000s, and now we see that. H1N1 particular strain, coming back as a seasonal infection, uh, and flu every year. So we think that possibly it's uh, the same thing that happened with SARS-CoV-2. Very
0: interesting. Well, we'll leave it there. Riley, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate the overview on this.
4: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.